You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, good morning. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 20. Over the past several weeks, we've been in Exodus chapter 20 looking at the Ten Commandments and uh, what God had to say in the Old Testament to his people. We've seen how uh, many of those commandments are reiterated in the New Testament, um, how we get a New Testament understanding of those. And while sometimes we maybe think that uh, there's less regulations in the New Testament, hopefully we've seen in looking at the Ten Commandments that there's actually a, a deeper understanding of how those commandments are to be lived out in the New Testament, um, that, that Jesus uh, helps the people to see really that what God always intended was there to be an understanding of the outward action and the inward heart condition about it. So it wasn't just not committing murder. It was not hating people in your heart. It wasn't just not committing adultery. It was not lusting after others in your heart. And so uh, certainly in the New Testament, we're seeing that the expectations of holy living for those who choose to follow Jesus uh, is certainly not relaxed, right? The, the relaxation comes from knowing that uh, we've been forgiven of our sins uh, and, and really being able to see that forgiveness, right? People in the Old Testament were still forgiven of their sins, um, but we, we learn in Romans chapter 3 that their sins were passed over until Jesus came, and then it was in that moment in time when God poured out his wrath on his son to atone both for the sins of the Old Testament and the people of the New Testament. And so, we live in a relaxed state, and we, we, we have seen God's plan. We've seen it revealed. We're not looking and hoping for a Messiah to come to pay for our sins and to live a perfect life, to achieve righteousness. We've seen that. That's already happened. Uh, but we don't live in a relaxed state of, hey, our, our holy living doesn't have to measure up to what it was in the Old Testament. In fact, we're seeing that maybe there's a greater expectation placed upon us, particularly with the Holy Spirit living inside of us, empowering us to say no to the flesh and to say yes to the Spirit. Um, hopefully we're seeing that there is great expectation on us to live in the ways that God's called us to live. Um, <clears throat> as we come out of this section on the Ten Commandments, though, we enter into uh, maybe the challenge, most challenging part of teaching the book of Exodus because we're going to start to get into some particular nuances that were specific to Old Testament Israel, right? So we're going to get into some, some texts that maybe initially feel funny or irrelevant to us in the New Testament because they're being addressed about things that just don't seem to translate to our lives today. And so it is going to be particularly challenging over the coming weeks in, in how to make that relevant for us. But I want to kind of lay the groundwork today in hopes that you'll understand why we're not going to just skip over it, right? We're not going to just skip over this section and say, hey, that was for Old Testament Israel. New Testament church looks different, so we don't even look at it. Uh, that would convey, I think, what we've been trying to push back against, and that is that this idea that's kind of out there that the Old Testament doesn't matter, that we don't need it, that it doesn't have anything to say to us today. It absolutely speaks to us authoritatively today, and we need to see that. And so we're not going to skip over this section of Exodus that maybe presents more challenges to me as the preacher in knowing how to bring it to you in a relevant way. Um, I'm going to accept the challenge and say, hey, let's look at this and let's see what we can glean over the next several weeks looking at what I'm titling the law for everyday life. Um, and, and we'll see what that means today specifically. But let's look at Exodus chapter 20. We're going to finish up the chapter today. So we'll start reading in verse 18 at the conclusion of the 10th commandment. It says, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus ye shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, uh, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings." your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you weld your tool on it, you profane it. 
and you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Right? We're already jumping into some text that you're like, what does that mean? What does that mean for me? Like, what are we talking about here? We're going to see, hopefully, how it applies to us today. Uh, Our summary sentence for today, God's character seen through his law is meant to be adopted into our normal rhythm of life as a means of imaging him well, making Old Testament applications of the law relevant even if they are not authoritative for our lives today. God's character seen through his law is meant to be adopted into our normal rhythm of life as a means of imaging him well, making Old Testament applications of the law relevant even if they are not authoritative for our lives today. For our kids, the Old Testament laws can help us understand how to live for God in the New Testament. All right, so what do we mean by this? We're saying that as we've already shown, hopefully, uh, through the Ten Commandments, that God's character comes forth in the things that he calls us to, right? So the things that he talks about where we're to have no other gods and no idols and we're to use his name properly and we're to set aside time for him during the week and we're to not murder and we're to not commit adultery and we're to, to not steal and not kill and not covet. These are all things that reflect his character. We've talked about how they're summed up by Jesus in the New Testament to love God fully and to love others as yourself. And that's how we fulfill these commands, right? And so God's character is attached to these laws, which means they absolutely remain relevant to us in the New Testament because his character doesn't change, right? What we see, though, is that not only did God give a checklist of laws that needed to be adopted, he also provided clarity on the daily application of those same laws. What do I mean? Well, in these coming chapters, what we're going to see is that the laws that are talked about here forth going into Exodus is that these are applications of what we've already looked at, right? This is the how-to. These are the, here's some specific examples and cases that are going to pop up in your life as Israelites in Old Testament times, and you're going to need to know how to act in those situations, right? So, It is definitely written to Old Testament Israel. It's definitely written to their context, right? So we're not going to see application for how we're to uh, interact disagreement-wise with Facebook or Twitter or other social media outlets, right? Old Testament Israel didn't have that. They had disputes about what to do when your goats were doing certain things and your cows were doing certain things, and it created tension in the camp. Right? We got millions of people that are living together in the wilderness. You're going to expect, right, on this massive long road trip, that there's going to be issues. Think about your own family. When you travel and you get in a car and you travel six to eight hours to go on vacation somewhere, tension gets created in the car, right? Tension gets created at meals. Tension gets created in the hotel rooms. There's something about being on a road trip that creates new tensions that weren't there previously. These people are on a road trip. They're not going to have a permanent home, they don't know it, for for really another 40 years, and even they aren't going to have the permanent home that's going to be their kids because of their rebellion, right? They're on a permanent road trip until until they die at this point, and there's, there's going to be tensions there. How to live out the laws in the midst of being on a massive road trip, and so God gives them direct application. So we're going to get to look into that application and say, okay, most of us don't own goats, right? So what does this mean for me as a non-goat owner? Some of you do own goats, so maybe you'll find double relevancy in it, right? Uh, Most of us don't, right? So we don't just read a passage about how to handle your goats and say, let's just skip right over this, right? Like there's principles there because God's character is going to come out, and hopefully we can see that and say, oh, this is what it means for me in my day and age today. He's forming a people to live as a display of his glory and therefore needs to teach how to live in community with one another. So flowing from the Ten Commandments are going to be ways to understand their daily application for Israel. Again, how they were to apply it thousands of years ago. He's calling them to holiness, integrity, mercy, justice, and fairness in the ordinariness of life. Now, hopefully we can agree and say that we know that Jesus calls us to the same things, right? He calls us as well to um, holiness, integrity, mercy, justice, and fairness in our own ordinariness of life. 
So we're going to see what was ordinary for them. We're going to see what God said to them, and we're going to say, okay, what's the principle there that needs to be pulled out and applied to our context? These coming sermons then are going to be a study of the ordinances that help us glorify God in our own daily lives by the ways we honor him and treat each other. How do we live out God's character while we go to work, while we interact with our neighbors, while we raise our kids, while we do the normal daily affairs of life. Think about how most of your days go. Most of our days have a normal ebb and flow, right? Like if I were to ask you how your week was last, last week, you're going to immediately try to dismiss the normal stuff and think about like the highlights, what was different about last week. And those are typically the things that we share with somebody, right? Like, like it's, not, it's not very entertaining to say, well, I got up and I went to work and then I came home and I ate dinner and I put my kids to bed and then I did that on Tuesday and I did that on Wednesday and I did that on Thursday and I did that on Friday. Right? Like we typically look for something that was different about last week. What, what we're hoping to see here is that most of our days and most of our weeks are very similar. They're very ordinary. And yet it's in that ordinary that we're supposed to love mercy and love justice and show humility. We're to live out the character of God in the ordinary. There's two points of emphasis that I want you to get as we move into this back end of Exodus, okay? And I didn't put them on a slide, so you'll just have to write them down or try to remember them because I think they're important. Number one, we must be careful not to throw these sections out because we think they have nothing to teach us today about living for God, okay? We got to be careful that we don't just throw this stuff out and say, I have no idea what this means. This was clearly for Old Testament Israel. It has nothing to teach me today. So we, that's, that's a point of emphasis. We don't want to throw this section out or these sections out and think they have no relevancy for us. Number two, we also must be careful not to think that we must automatically adopt every guidance laid out for Israel for ourselves today, right? Because we don't live under this covenant. We don't live under this law. So it's not that we go back and say, okay, like there's some clear things here that was said to Israel. I guess I need to start doing this today. I guess I got to go buy some goats so that I can have problems with my goats, right? Like that's not what we're going we're gonna to come out of this application-wise. We're not going to dismiss it, but we're also not going to dial into it and say points of application come directly in the ways they were given to Israel. We're going to have to do a little bit of work, right? We have to do a little bit of work and say, this is important, this is relevant, but what do I do with it today? Because it's different today, right? So the goal then would be to see the principles that do apply to our everyday situations. We need to learn what they mean and then make responsible, Christ-centered, new covenant application. What was God trying to say to these people when he says, don't walk upstairs on an altar and show your nakedness? What does he mean by that? And then how do we make sure that we fulfill that in the New Testament as New Testament believers? right? There's continuity and discontinuity, right? Like we're not a theocracy. So some of this is hard to compare because they lived under a government that was ruled by God, right? And so even some of their sacrifices and, 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 and givings were tied to like our tax system, right? There were taxes within Israel because they were a government. So some of this will, will be a challenge to compare. How does it relate to us today? But what we do need to remember is that God's character is revealed and that doesn't change. So there's absolute relevancy that still exists for us today. Okay, so hopefully that kind of lays a foundation that as, as weird and odd as some of these texts may look going forward, there is relevancy for us today. Now, I will tell you that we'll probably start to move through Exodus faster than we have been going, right? We'll probably start to chunk some of this together, okay, pulling out principles, similar to how we've done in the past where we've done chapters at a time, right? Um, so we'll probably start to pick up more chunks of Exodus at one time, hopefully still be able to pull out relevant principles for you to live out in response to what we read and study, okay? So let's look at our text today. We're covering the, the back end of chapter 20, <clears throat> and so we'll jump in with number one today, maintain a healthy fear of God. We need to maintain a healthy fear of God. After the Ten Commandments are given, we're told in verse 18, the people assess the environment, they assess the situation, right? Not only what's been said, but the context and environment that it's been given in. Thunder and flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet, the mountain smoking, and the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, 
You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. There, there's a, there's a, a fear of God here. Let's look specifically at how Israel was feeling. Number one, there is a fear of the expectations for obeying the law. There's a fear of the expectations for obeying the law. There's a sense of awe about the whole scene that leads them to tremble, both at what is happening now and what is to happen next. They understand what's being asked of them, right? There's a total allegiance that's being demanded in every aspect of their lives. They're to obey all of this all the time. And that's a weighty thing, particularly if you don't understand Christ and the gospel and the salvation that's extended to him because of what he's done for us, right? So like, we, we don't know how it would have felt to be Israel in this type of context, but they're standing in this awe-inspiring environment, and God is thundering down these expectations, and there's a, there's a fear that, that sets in on them, a fear that says, man, we're supposed to do this fully all the time, a fear of the expectations for obeying the law, which leads into, number two, a fear of the consequences for not obeying the law. I would guess that many of them hear these things and are probably resolved to having to say, I've, I've broken those things already. Just as we talked about last week, as we were kind of working through them one by one, I said, this isn't a matter of you finding the ones that you're guilty of. It's really a matter of you seeing that you're guilty of breaking all of them, right? Like there's no holiness that can be found in us as sinful man. So they're hearing these things maybe for the first time in a checklist format, but we talked about how a lot of these things were written on their heart or were already a part of their culture. And so as they're hearing them read, they're, they're very likely to have understood, and we've, we've broken all of these. We've broken all of these. So, so what does that mean? And then on top of that, we've broken all of these. And if we're really being honest with ourselves, we know we're going to keep breaking them going forward. Right? Like, like we're not going to stop. I mean, like as we've been working through these as, as believers, New Testament, Holy Spirit living inside of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we look at the Ten Commandments and we say, I've broken all of those, and I don't see that stopping. Until Jesus comes back, I don't see that stopping. Right? So there's this fear that sets in for Israel. What does that mean? Like, what are we supposed to do? They recognize they're guilty of breaking these laws. They're incapable of keeping them any better going forward. There's a fear about it. Now, Moses tells them that the fear is, is, is both good and bad, right? He tells them not to be afraid, for God has come to test you. So there's kind of an assurance that Moses extends that says, hey, you don't have to think that God's here to just wipe the earth with you right now, right? So, so step back and take a deep breath and say, okay, like God's not here to kill me right now. You don't have to be afraid. And yet he then goes on to say there should still be fear, right? Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. He's really saying, don't be afraid of being afraid. Don't fear the fear that you have. He doesn't try to take the fear away completely. He says it's, it's, it's right and appropriate for you to be fearful of this, and yet you can temper that in some ways. You can temper it knowing that God has purpose in being here right now with you in the things that he's communicating. So yes, be fearful, but don't be overly afraid that you're crippled by it, right? He says, no, you need to be fearful of him because it's meant to lead you into to a type of living that reduces the sin. He's here to test you that you may not sin. Remember, we've talked about that part of the law is to restrain our depravity, to keep us from doing certain things. Even though it doesn't make us perfect, it does help control sin in society. He says, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. They recognize they're guilty. They know they can't keep it. Moses says, be fearful, but be, be thankful that you have fear because a lack of fear would be concerning. Here's the thing that we know, though. In spite of their fear, it doesn't serve as a good enough motivator to keep them holy. Because right, they're going to go on and fail. Even Moses is going to fail after this. 
Fear is probably a bad motivator for obedience. It helps, right? Like it helps keep us in check, but it certainly doesn't purify us and it certainly doesn't make us holy, right? Fear in society keeps people from doing things because they don't want to get in trouble, right? Like the the laws and commands that we have at, at our school keep a lot of the students from doing bad things all the time. But then that fear starts to wane a little bit and they'll choose to do bad things. What what we see in the New Testament is that Jesus calls us to express obedience through love because love's a far greater motivator, right? Like like if if I'm in love with my wife, right, then the love I have for her keeps me pursuing a pure relationship with others outside of our marriage, not just because I read the Ten Commandments that says thou shalt not commit adultery, right? Like there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a fear factor of like, man, if I were to step out of our marriage, then things could potentially crumble, right? I could lose my family, lose my kids, lose my job, like lose a lot of things, right? So that, that helps keep me in check, but it's the love that I have for my wife that really keeps me pursuing a, a state of purity at all times, right? Fear is a good motivator, but, but fear won't keep us in line with what God's called us to. Jesus says, if you love me, you keep my commandments. Not if you fear me or if you worry about judgment, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, right? So their fear is good, it's right, but it doesn't, it's not enough to keep them being obedient. We need a healthy fear of God even in the New Testament. The application for us today is that we need a healthy fear of God and a healthy fear of his law to keep our perspective about the law in check. A healthy fear of God helps us to process the law in the New Testament, right? Fear is healthy, it's good. The absence of fear is bad. People who live as though they are the authority of their life have no fear of God, right? They have no fear of God. Um, what What does Solomon tell us at the end of Ecclesiastes after he's processed all of his life and all of his pursuits and all of his wants and desires being met? He says, the whole duty of man is to fear God and keep his commandments, right? So, so there, there should be a fear of God that, that's maintained, right? It's healthy, it's good, an absence of fear is bad. Um, but we don't want to be guilty of shifting from the gospel to a works-based mentality. And, and, and if we lose sight of fearing the law, then we do start to look at the law as a way to achieve righteousness, right? We look at it as a way to, to, to make ourselves acceptable before God. Um, the book of Galatians speaks to this right? You can read through Galatians and Paul starts to rebuke the church at Galatia because they've strayed from the gospel. They started to listen to other people who are pushing for a works-based mentality for, for how to gain acceptance before God. Uh, if, if you've ever read the book Pilgrim's Progress or if you've ever seen the movie, you know that in his journey, Christian encounters a, a man before he's released of his burden right? He's not, he's not experienced salvation. He's convicted of his sin. He's, he's read the commandments like we've read them. He sees that he falls short of the glory of God, and so he wants to do something about that burden. And so evangelist puts him on a track to, to go and, and pursue the, the narrow path that's going to lead to salvation, and, and he comes across a man who points him towards Mount Sinai, essentially. Tells him that he can meet a man on the top of Mount Sinai um, who, who will help him uh, get rid of that burden, a man named Legality in the town of Morality. He's supposed to help Christian get rid of his burden. The, the, the context in that story is that he's, he's to go to the Ten Commandments and he's to look for legalistic and moral ways to justify himself, to excuse himself, to, to rid himself of the burden and to say, you know what, I am okay. Other people are worse than me. That's contrary to the gospel, Right? We don't get to go to the law of God and say, I keep it better than others, therefore I'm probably okay, I'm probably good. We need to fear the law in the sense that if we try to earn salvation through the law, man, condemnation is all we get from that. It's all we get from that. Obedience to the law is not a path we can walk to be accepted by God. It creates self-righteousness and legalism if we attempt to do it. It doesn't have the power to save. It can only threaten with judgment, and it can only show a need for salvation. So us as New Testament believers, we need to have a healthy fear of God, and we certainly need to keep a good perspective about the law, fearing 
what it would look like to try to obey the law for salvation. It doesn't work. It doesn't help. Paul would say in the book of Galatians, man, keep your mind in check about that. Like, don't revert away from what you know to be true about the gospel. Number two, remember your need for a mediator. All right? So, so Moses tells them to, to, to not be afraid of being afraid, right? And then it says in verse 20, um, or sorry, let's say in verse uh, 19, they had said, you speak to us, we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die, right? So he, he tries to encourage them with his words, and then it says, verse 21, the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And it's there in verse 22 that the Lord begins to speak to Moses. So the people call for Moses to be a mediator, similar to how we would call upon a lawyer to help us when we know that we have violated the law, right? Think about it. If you've ever found yourself guilty of breaking the law, panic probably sets in, right? Like a a little bit of healthy fear knowing that I'm going to have to go and stand before the legal system and give an account for my actions. Um, Whether it's something as minor as a speeding ticket or a parking violation or something more major, for all of us, it creates a stir of fear probably, and the greater the offense, the, the more legal counsel we maybe want, right? I, I've, had to, I've had to go to court down in Greenville for a speeding ticket way back when Lauren was pregnant with maybe AJ, Abram. I think it was AJ, one of them. Um, we were at a wedding, and, and she was super uncomfortable, and she was ready to be home. And so I was pushing the gas a little bit harder than I should have through a town that I never drive through and uh, got a speeding ticket. And I remember... Uh, when that cop pulled me over, like just a massive amount of fear set in, right? And I remember uh, at that time, budget-wise, I was like, man, we can't afford any type of increase to our insurance. And so I began talking to everybody that I could. What can I do to fix this? What can I do to help this? And I went and stood at the fellowship hall in Greenville where they do their court hearings at like six o'clock at night on a Tuesday and stood before the judge and the cop, and I'm pleading my case and hoping that, that the guidance and counsel I've gotten will excuse me on, in some way from, from the penalty of the law, right? A lawyer oftentimes is brought into those cases if the, if the violation is serious enough, right? What do we need a lawyer for? We feel like the lawyer helps stand in the gap between us and the law, right? Like you've got the judge who represents the law, we represent the offended party. We need somebody to help bridge the gap, somebody to be the, the counsel who, who isn't in violation of anything here that can speak to both parties and hopefully help come to a resolution. That's what Moses is for the people. He's like their lawyer. He's, they say, hey, we don't want to have to go before God. We don't want to hear from God. That whole thing scares us. Will you do it for us? Right? Well, like, will you be our person that kind of goes and, and helps us through this situation. He's the best of the best for them, and he's chosen to be that mediator. Number one, they need a mediator to represent God to themselves, right? They need somebody to to act as the spokesman for God to come and speak to them. They desire Moses to be the spokesperson for God rather than having God speak personally to them. They're fearful of the holiness that they've, they've seen on display here, right? But they also need a mediator to represent themselves to God. They know they haven't kept the law. They cannot keep the law and therefore need someone else to stand in the gap for them. And Moses begins to play that role in a more clear way here and going forward. Verse 22 says that the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you've seen for yourselves that I've talked with you from heaven. And then he begins to give further clarifications on the commands that have already been talked about. He's serving as that mediator. Now, it's a, it's a limited mediation that Moses can provide, right? Because he's not perfect. He, he's a guilty lawyer. He, 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 can't, he can't stand and, and, and get, us completely, uh, get, get, get things completely dropped for us. He, he's a guilty lawyer. So, the application for us today is that we get to see this same type of thing playing out, but in a far better way because Jesus is the all-sufficient mediator for us, right? Um, that's, not, that's not new information for you, but seeing the work of Christ in an obscure Old Testament text like this should just reinforce the things that we sing about. 
that, that we, we uh, as we sang today, rock of ages cleft for me, right? Let me hide myself in thee. Let me hide myself in thee. Think about how that applies to this setting, right? Israel is on a mountain of rock, terrified of a holy God. Fearful because they know they're sinful. Fearful because they know they can't be obedient. And they're looking to hide. Right? They need somewhere to hide. And their best hiding opportunity is Moses. It's like Adam and Eve, right? Like they're fearful. They're scared. They're hiding. And our kids could answer this question if I asked them. What does Adam and Eve do to hide themselves? Well, they try to hide in the bushes and they've also tried to cover their nakedness with their own man-made efforts of clothing. And it's not good enough. It's not sufficient enough, right? So they, they come before God, and God says, this isn't going to work, right? Like there's, there's a penalty that has to be paid. And so he kills the animal. He makes the clothes for them and clothes them. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. It's the equivalent of us being at Mount Sinai, seeing our, our sin before a holy God, and then being able to hide in the mountain, being able to hide in God. We're not, we're not, we're not pulling up our best human being and saying, let, let him count for us. God's saying, I'll count for you. And it's a beautiful picture. And, and rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee, has meaning for us to sing this morning because of a passage like this where we can see what it would look like to stand before a holy God on a mountain and need to be hidden and being able to find relief by hiding in him. Jesus allows us to hide in him from the wrath of God. He's the mediator. We praise him for that. He's permanent. He's all sufficient. The book of Hebrews goes to great lengths to tell us how much better Jesus is than Moses because he can fully bridge the gap between us and God. He was born under the law, Galatians 4 says, to redeem us from it, Galatians 3 says, Colossians 2 says. By fulfilling every aspect of it, Jesus says himself in Matthew chapter 5, he lived the life we could not live. He's the law keeper. He died the death that we deserved. He acts as the law breaker for us as well. Our hope and our power then does not come from our law keeping, but from his. And so we can praise Jesus for he is the one who saves those who cannot keep God's holy law. Man, you should, you should hear this section of this sermon and if we were to start the service back over, the singing should be different this time around with this on your mind, right? To hide ourselves in the holy God who we have offended. And it's a beautiful picture. We, we could never really fully hide ourselves anywhere else. We could attempt to, we could try to. God knew that we couldn't. We could never be saved from our sin through our own efforts. He sent Jesus to make the way for us. Number three, evaluate the purity of your worship. What does the Lord say to him in verse 23? You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your ox. And in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build of it hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. All right, let's talk about what does that mean for us today? Number one, their worship was to be directed to God only. That's very applicable for us today as well, right? He's saying don't worship pagan gods. God desires our worship to be directed to him only. He's reiterating the commands that have already been expressed. He's just he's saying the same thing again. And anytime somebody says the same thing again, you ought to know that it's really important to them if they're saying it twice, right? As a boss, as a coach, right? There's things that I say multiple times because I need you to get it, right? One of the things, you know, uh, when, you, when, you're, when you're in a football game, in a tight football game, and I found our, we found ourselves in a tight football game Thursday night with our middle schoolers, where every play counts and every possession counts, you get to like fourth down, right? Fourth and short, meaning that if the team doesn't get past the yard marker, we get the ball, right? And it's short enough to where if they can get us to jump off sides, 
right? We go early. Post says we get in trouble if we do that, right? Like we're at, we're at a Friday night football game, and if a flag gets thrown, he always looks to me and says, Dad, did our team get in trouble? Yeah, Poe, like we, we left early. Like our team started playing before the other team did, right? If you can get the other team to play first, right, you get to move forward automatically and get a first down, right? And so when that happens, fourth down, it's short. Everybody on the planet knows the other team's going to try to get the other team to jump early, right? And so as a coach, what are you doing? You're yelling on the sideline, watch the ball, watch the ball, watch the ball. Don't jump, don't jump, watch the ball. They heard me the first time, right? But it's so important that you get this because I've seen so many kids still jump off sides, even though everybody on the planet knows what they're trying to do, right? Don't, don't jump, watch the ball, watch the ball. It's super important. God's like, no other gods before me. And he comes back to it and he's like, for real, no silver gods, no gold gods, like no other gods before me. Why? Because he knows we're tempted to do it. He knows we're so tempted. It's so hard when that quarterback starts barking out a cadence that makes you think that ball's going to snap. Everything in your body as a defenseman says, jump, jump, go get him, let's stop him, right? Everything inside of us is, is tempted towards the allures of the world, the gold and the, the, the silver, the glitz and the glamour. Everything feels in an ordinary day of life more important than God, Right? More important thing, God. God on Sundays feels really important because this is not an ordinary day, right? Like your whole week's pretty ordinary and then Sundays are always different. So it's easy to kind of rally around the fact that God's important because it's Sunday and we're giving him time and attention. It's hard sometimes to make him important on Monday because Monday's an ordinary day. You get up, you go to work, you're raising your kids, you're doing your normal things. And he says, you're gonna be tempted to make other things more important than me. Don't, don't do that. Don't do that. You're not going to be tempted to go home today and make gods of gold and silver. You will be tempted this week to put other things before him, to make other things more important than him. Their worship was to be directed to God only. Don't want to be guilty of half-hearted devotion that mixes the natural so much with the spiritual that our devotion is not discernible. Let me say that again. We don't want to be guilty of half-hearted devotion that mixes the natural so much with the spiritual that our devotion is not discernible. We've talked about this before. Like, we all know people that if, if you were asked about them, hey, are they a believer or not? And you pause for a second. And you say, I think they are. I think they are. Like, I think they would say that they are, but why do you pause? Because the natural and the spiritual gets mixed so much in that person's life that it's not clearly discernible whether they're devoted to God or not. A lot of us know people like that. For some of us, we may be those people. That if somebody else were asked about us, hey, are they a believer or not? Would, would people pause and say, I think they are? I want to live my life in such a way where if somebody said, is he a believer? They would say, oh, definitely. He's not perfect. But man, it's clear where his devotion is. It's clear where he gets his guidance and direction from. It's clear what he's trying to accomplish with his life. That's what God desired for his people here. Not half-hearted devotion where the natural and the spiritual was so intertwined that you didn't know if they were the people of God or not. He wants them to be set apart different, clear that they worship him. Number two, their worship was to increase God's glory while decreasing man's. They weren't, to build, they weren't to build gods, but they were to build altars, right? Don't build pagan gods, but do build appropriate altars is what we see here. He says in verse 24, an altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. And then I'm gonna bless you for it. He says, but don't make an altar of stone with hewn stones for that would profane it. What's he saying there? Like, what's the principle for us? Because ain't none of us building altars today, right? In the ways that he's talking about. None of us are going out and, and picking earth over stone to do anything today, probably. What's he mean by that? Well, their, their altars were costly and showy. At least the pagan ones were. This idea of hewn stone meant that they had gone to great lengths to create a really glitzy and glamorous altar, Right? And it was meant to highlight man's accomplishments, which is the exact opposite of what an altar is supposed to be, right? An altar is meant to, to show um, 
a need for God to accomplish something because man has not, or to honor God for accomplishing what man could not. That's what an altar was. There was an altar was meant to, to come and say, God, I haven't done it, forgive me. Or an altar was meant to be a place of thanksgiving where you came to God and said, God, thank you for doing what I can't do. And what, what they were gonna be tempted to do was to make the altar so great that when people came to worship, they were drawn to look at the altar and say, man, it's a great altar. I mean, who, 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 who built that? It's awesome. Like, that's, that's great, right? And all of a sudden, the attention is on the altar versus the God who's supposed to be worshiped at the altar. The altar shows grace from God, right? It reminds the people to, he reminds them to keep from sin, but then he makes provision for their sin, Right? Like, this is evidence that God never intended or never thought that they could keep the law perfectly because he immediately starts talking about altars where you're going to have to ask for forgiveness for not keeping it. He says, when you do that, when you come to worship me, make sure it's all about me. Make sure it's not about yourself. Make sure it's not about the, the glitz and the glamour of your accomplishments. Make sure that when people come and worship me in your setting, that they're drawn to think about me and not you. That's a good principle for us to live by in the New Testament as we worship, right? Our worship on a Sunday ought to point everybody in this room to God. And if it points them to anything else, then we're, we're missing what we should be doing here. That's what, that's what he's telling the people here. Your altars, your places of worship should point people to me. And then lastly, their worship was to demonstrate purity rather than sexuality. Purity rather than sexuality. Not only are you not to worship pagan gods, he says, don't worship God like pagans. Don't worship pagan gods, and also don't worship me like pagans worship. Our sexuality is to be submitted to him as well. Now look what he says specifically. You shall not go up on steps to my altar that your nakedness be not exposed on it. All right, so What's, what's exactly going on here? Well, part of it was the pagans constructed places of worship where there was an elevation concept to it, right? Which is probably not good if you think back to the Tower of Babel and how that was an effort to get to God in the ways they even constructed their ways of worship, right? But in doing that, like the ways that they would climb and the ways that they wore clothing at that time, it could potentially either intentionally or unintentionally, expose you to people who were looking up as you walked up the ladder, right? They're like, whoo, I can see right up there, right? And so God's like, you're going to be modest in your worship at the, at the base level, like how you choose to dress in your worship is going to be meant not to draw attention to you, but to point people to God, right? And then if you think deeper, as we'll get into more about what other practices happened in pagan worship is oftentimes it was tied to uncovering yourself versus covering yourself, right? So their practices were to uncover themselves and to engage in activity that was meant for privacy at home, but it was on full display for everybody, right? Their worship services, man, people looked forward to it because it was super pleasurable, right? Wasn't anything boring about a pagan worship service because it was basically an opportunity to engage in all the activity you wanted to right there, and none of it had anything to do with God. And we know they, 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 they fall right into this because when they, when they build the golden calf, which they'll do in a few chapters, they're doing this very thing. They're uncovering themselves, exposing themselves. God doesn't want us to be guilty of half-hearted fidelity that justifies behavior inconsistent with his regulations on what a male and female relationship should be. I told you a couple of weeks ago that as we grow as a church, we're going to find that more and more people come to us that have been saved out of things that maybe when we were smaller, we would say, hey, we don't know anybody that's ever struggled with that or anybody that's ever done that. Right? So as we work through the Ten Commandments, it's like, hey, as we get bigger, we're going to find more and more people have actually done all of these things that we're talking about, and they've, they've experienced God's grace in that. Another byproduct, byproduct of growing as a church as we get bigger is that when, when we have never dealt with serious division or scandal, we're, we're opening ourselves up more and more to that potentially happening if we're not on guard. Because as we grow, 
right? There's more opportunities to be divided. It's one of the reasons that I wanted us to go through 1 Corinthians. Why? Because it talks about division. Is there a problem with division right here, right now? No, but I hope there never is. I love being able to sit with other pastors and say, hey, by God's grace, over the past 10 to 12 years of our church's existence, we've had almost no divisions within our church. It's all been minor stuff that we've been able to work through. We've had no serious scandals within our church. But the bigger we we get, the more we grow, right, the more opportunity the enemy has to come in and say, let's be divided, right, or let's fall into temptations that previously we didn't see. I want us to be so careful that we we see a, a warning and a heeding like this, and we say, we don't dismiss it and say, well, that's not a problem here. Let's may it never be a problem here right? Let it be that we dress in such a way where we never try to draw the attention of somebody else's spouse to us. Like that's, ne- that's never been a problem that I'm aware of here, right? And I want it to never be a problem here where, where we would have infidelity within marriages within our church. Let it be that our worship is always meant to where when we gather, man, we are about Jesus. We're about pointing people to Jesus and we never do anything in our gathering that would draw attention to ourselves. Right? That we never want to uncover anything. Instead, we recognize, man, I come to, to worship because I need to be covered up by Jesus. Because I'm a mess without him. Right? No uncovering in our setting. It's always about being covered by Jesus. That's the application for us today. That our worship ought to be structured to draw our attention to him alone. Draw our attention to him alone. What do we learn from worship told you I want us to draw principles out of these things that maybe don't feel like they on the surface have a direct application for us. What's the principles that we can draw out today about worship? These are adopted from uh, Tony uh, Merida's Exalting Jesus in Exodus commentary. So I'm going to give credit to him because I pulled him straight from, from my study of his thoughts on this text. Number one being the principle of simplicity. How we worship can't distract us from who we worship. How we worship can't distract us from who we worship. He says, don't prepare so much that you forget to worship, right? Like, I want our church services to always feel simple, right? Because I don't want the people that help put on our Sunday worship to ever get so entwined in the preparation that they forget to worship as well. I'm okay with it being simple. I'm okay with it being disorganized sometimes because I want us to focus on God and not all of the man-made accomplishments of a Sunday morning. Principle of simplicity. The worship, we worship how he wants, not how we want. And we don't worship in such a way to attempt to attract others to him. There's a great passage. We won't take time to read it. In 2 Kings chapter 16. 2 Kings chapter 16, verse 20. Um, let me just pull it up to reference a couple of things from it. Um, there, the, the king of Israel, King Ahaz, goes to Damascus and he meets with Tiglath-Pileser, who's the king of Assyria, because he's kind of now under the, the control of him. And so he gets a glimpse of like how they worship, and, and he's, such a, he's such a weenie of a king because he comes back and basically says, we got to change what we do because this guy's coming, and I don't want, I don't want to be offend, offensive to him. I don't want him to think we do things differently here. And so he actually has the people move like their altars and their way of worship to the back, and he says, let's build our worship the way they worship so that when he comes, he feels right at home. You could take that text and really apply it to today as far as like, why do we construct our Sunday mornings to cater towards believers and not unbelievers, right? Because if an unbeliever walks in here, I want them to see us pointing people to God, not trying to make them feel super comfortable, like they can just keep coming and stay comfortable in their sin. That's why we don't sing secular songs here, right? We sing songs with great theology. I want unbelievers to be like, what's going on here? Like, this is so confusing. It's nothing like anything I've ever experienced. Great. Let us tell you more about that. But an unbeliever comes in here and says, I feel right at home. This is awesome. Like these people are just like me. And it's so natural here. It's like, what are we doing? Right? This should be a place where we're pointing people to God. Principle of simplicity. Number two, the principle of purity. How we worship should demonstrate modesty and control over our desires. Our pleasure isn't the focus of our worship. The purity here should define us as worshipers. May it be that God would always preserve the leaders of this church. I never want to stand before you and have to say that we've, we've, we've discovered one of our leaders has been promiscuous in his lifestyle. It's never happened. The temptation will only increase as we grow bigger. 
right? May it be that our, our worshipers here at our church are known for purity. The principle of locality, where we worship can be flexible as God can and will meet us in various environments, right? Jesus tells the woman at the well in John chapter 4, verse 24, that, that they can worship in spirit and in truth in multiple places. They don't have to be at the temple to do that, right? He says, I'll come to you wherever and bless you if you're worshiping me in the right way. It's a good reminder to us as we continue to grow, Lord willing, as we continue to plant more churches, we don't just have to worship right here in this building in Sonoy. He will allow us to worship wherever, right? We worshiped with him early in our church age when we had to have an Easter service at Ryan's Steakhouse on a Sunday morning for Easter Sunday because the place we rented was being used for a family reunion. And I felt so unholy in telling our people we were going to be at Ryan's Steakhouse for Easter Sunday. And yet I was reminded, man, we can worship him wherever, right? Like he was honored that day and we highlighted the resurrection, right? Uh, It it was a good day. Uh, It was a good resurrection Sunday because he can meet us wherever. Principle of locality. And lastly, the principle of sacrifice. Why we worship is tied to our expected failures and his assured superiority, right? We come not to offer sacrifices today, but we come to celebrate the sacrifice that has been offered once and for all. And that will always be the focus of our worship, that we are celebrating Jesus, who is our sacrifice. It's why we don't have altars today. It's why our sacrifices have now shifted from animals to our lives, right? Romans chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 13, talk about the sacrifices that we offer from ourselves to God in response as a way to worship him. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for the principles that we've seen today. Uh, Lord, this doesn't always directly apply to us in the Old Testament as you were speaking to Israel thousands and thousands of years ago in a time where uh, so much was different when it came to ordinary life. But Lord, help us to see that our ordinary lives need to be shaped by these same principles. Lord, we want to give our full attention to you. We know that we're distracted in the ordinariness of life, so protect us from that this week. Lord, we want to be pure in the ways that we come together and worship you. We want to be content in the, uh, the relationship statuses that you've given to us, whether we're married or whether we're single, whether we're fully happy with our spouse right now or, or not completely content. Lord, we want to fight for contentment so that when we come together and worship, we're focused on you. Lord, we want to be a place where, um, where we give our full attention to you and we don't try to highlight our accomplishments. We want to be a place where we come to, to sacrifice ourselves for you. We give up our wants and our needs to say, how can I love my neighbor as myself? Lord, help us to do that. Help us to, help us to be faithful in, in, in applying what we've seen today. Lord, lead us by your spirit and not by our flesh this week. Help a, a healthy fear of you, a healthy love of you to drive our devotion to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.